in my personal development, the I'd say the the one thing that has helped me the most is becoming uh, intimately familiar with some tooling. For me, it's Foundry, and this has helped me. Like I can just spin up immediately within ten seconds. Uh, you know, a new Foundry project. I see something. Oh, I can reproduce that imme- immediately. You know, there's a new hack. Oh, you know, how does this work? Oh, I can immediately reproduce it. It kind of reduces that friction of, uh, I need to, you know, how do I initialize this new project? How do I write my code? It's definitely helped me uh, just do the the things that if I if I wasn't intimately familiar, I would have pushed it aside. It's not worth the 30 minutes. Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. Today's guest is Rage, an Anon dev who has done a lot of really great work in the space, both with low-level Solidity stuff and in DeFi. Um, in this episode, we talk through uh, Rage's learning journey, his, his time in the space so far. Uh, he's another young gun who has come very far in a very short period of time. And it was fun to, to talk about how he's gotten where he is now. But we also went into uh, the optimizer culture a bit, um, like the, the impacts of this open environment that all of us are playing in on the speed at which people can learn, uh, the new knowledge is being created within Web3, um, and more really interesting just general engineering topics. So Rage is uh, someone who was recommended to me by Dev Tooligan. Dev Tooligan has been a, a wealth of uh, guest recommendations for the show. And yeah, we hope you enjoy this episode. If you are someone who is an optimizer yourself, who likes digging into low level systems, understanding the EVM under the hood, uh, and just wants to continue contributing knowledge to the space, Rage is a great person to listen to and to learn from. So with that, sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy the episode. As devs, we all love hackathons. They're a great way to boost your skill set, meet other engineers, and add to your portfolio of work. At Superfluid, we've sponsored many hackathons and decided to start putting on a hackathon of our own, the Superfluid Wave Pool. This hackathon is a little bit different though in that it's continuous, it's always open. You can submit any project built on Superfluid at any point throughout the month and have a chance to earn thousands of dollars in prizes depending on how your project stacks up. In just the last couple of months, we've seen dozens of teams build really amazing projects that run the gamut from superfluid developer tutorials to full-fledged applications uh, to a proof-of-concept superfluid StarkNet implementation that we thought was really, really impressive. So we encourage you to check it out today. You can learn more by going to superfluid.finance slash wavepool. That's superfluid.finance slash wavepool. Happy hacking. All right, we are back with another episode of Devs Do Something with a guest that I'm super excited to have here that was a recommendation from Dev Tooligan, who's one of the, that was one of the most popular episodes of all time. So I think this is going to be probably a good episode too. Uh, we have with us today, Rage. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. 
Yes, it's great to have you. So we're excited to to dive into some things that you've done in your career uh, and get into a lot of things that I think would be really helpful for early to mid-career devs in the space. But before we do that, uh, how did you get into uh, crypto and like Web3 overall? Yeah, that's a great start. Um, I feel like most people that you talk to in crypto have some kind of crazy story. Uh, how they first got in. Um, I don't necessarily have a crazy one, but um, I'd say the the first time I heard about crypto was 2017. Some of my family members were really into the ICO thing. Um, they were famously kind of reading like one white paper a day. That was their thing. Um, I, I hopped on that train too. Um, Obviously, I wasn't heavily invested. I was uh, a youngster then, uh, but that was the first my first foray into that. And um, I kind of got my first development chops then too. Um, there were some, you know, like meme coins that would have CPU mining, and I would launch some Google Cloud instances on the free free credits. You just make an email, launch uh, Google Cloud instances, and basically mine these meme coins for free. And that was one of my first first things I've ever done, like engineering-wise. Uh, that was really, really a good time. Um, but after the sort of like 2018, early 2018 crash, I basically forgot about all that. Um, and we fast forward to about late 2021. I got recommended a, a yield farming video. And like this guy was making, uh, making like five grand a day on this. Yeah, this, this is crazy. Um, and I got into the avalanche ecosystem. And at this point, I'm very fledgling developer. Like I, um, all I could do to get myself known, uh, I was making these Discord bots for NFT projects. Uh, basically, all I would do is, you know, read an event from the chain from the transfer events, and it would post on sales. And you know, I I take care of some of their like rarity. Um, so that was the first thing that kind of got me known in the space. I, you know, made a Twitter account, kind of got some following. Um, so that, yeah, that's that's really how I got started in crypto. How I even started uh, in development engineering. Interesting. So you started off doing the the original hustle during the ICO days. That's kind of yeah, funny with, I mean, with the Google Cloud. I probably right? only had like forty bucks to my you know crypto net worth then, but it was still quite fun. So you were just spinning up different Google Cloud instances on free credits with different emails. Am I understanding that? Yeah, right? that was absolutely it. This this one um, that I really did was called Garlic Coin. <laughs> oh um, yep, it launched I think on on Reddit, and it actually I looked at like the the project. It had like a resurgence. Uh, I think like a year and a half ago, uh, which is quite interesting. That's hilarious. Some some of those things. There's there's a team member on on Superfluid, which is where I work, who 
jokes about the one that the one that he thought was the most absurd was like called Dentacoin. It was like a dentist thing. Oh my yeah. gosh, I've never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> There's all kinds there of so stuff many. like that. Yeah. Um, okay, but that's interesting. So you forgot about it. You eventually came back, uh, started writing some Discord bots. And it, I mean, if that was 2021, you went zero to 100 with Discord bots to what you're doing now relatively quickly. Yeah, I mean, so just to add a little bit more context, I um, dropped out of school at about around the same time um, to kind of go full time into this. Uh, you know, I so I initially started uh, university uh, for electrical engineering, but I kind of found computer science as a side thing. And I quickly realized like I kind of have, you know, a good aptitude for this. So I sw- switched my majors and then a year later ended up dropping out to go full-time um, crypto development. Uh, so it was definitely interesting. Nice. And then beyond the uh, the Discord bot writing freelance style gig, what what did you do after that? Like, how did you get really into the Solidity stuff? Yeah. Uh, so my my first intro into Solidity, um, one of the first things I did was on Avalanche. Um, I so there there is this sort of MEV that I could extract on this um, protocol. It was a fork of Aave, and I knew I knew basically nothing at the time. Uh, my, my code was terrible. Um, but it was just a bit of a back running, uh, like someone would deposit and you could grab like a couple bucks an hour out of that. So that's how I first got started in solidity writing. Uh, and it, I mean, I got, I got, I was hooked. It was pretty addicting. Um, and I, I wrote a lot of bad code probably locked a bunch of money in my code in there you know testing was non-existent um, but it really got me hooked <laughs> so when you say it got you hooked this is an interesting one because it does seem to hook a lot of people and i think people come at it with different they come at it for different reasons they get hooked for different reasons some people uh get really into the low level just optimizer game they just love like the Something about the elegance or the competition of like writing the most efficient code. It just really like, I don't know, something about that just really excites them. You know, we've had people on that they really get excited about that. Uh, But for you, it sounds like there was like a thing here where there was some kind of like economic feedback loop. The the economic impact was kind of a secondary thing. Um, You know, that that was cool. But I just really enjoyed um, the... It, it's kind of like the, the difficulty, kind of like the the like hacker mindset, you know, like I don't do it because necessarily there's money in it, but because it's a difficult engineering problem. And that's what I really enjoyed. Interesting. Um, and that's what got me initially into like the optimizing, uh, the CTFs, you know, all this that eventually I spent a lot more time on. For sure. Like, how do you, how do you, what's your take on this whole optimizer culture, right? So we had on uh, Zero X Beans a couple of months ago, right? The guy who created the I Am The Optimizer Challenge. And we we talked about this for a while, like the role of this, you know, the role of this like tinkering 
and yeah. just trying to build the fishing code really just for the sake of it, almost like for the art. Uh, so, I mean, how do you how do you see this? It sounds like it's something that really kind of propelled your learning in your career, but I'm interested to hear what your take is on this whole culture in Web3. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have a good, you know, kind of story with this, actually. Um, the I am the optimizer challenge was one of the, uh, it's definitely memorable for me. Um, so I, I teamed up with um, Samsung and uh, Riley um, uh, Holter Huss, I believe is that last name. And we spent, you know, uh, dozens of hours kind of optimizing this it's a meme challenge basically for, for crypto Twitter devs, but it was, we were enamored with it seriously. Um, and I met up with Xerox beans a little bit after that. And we, uh, we talked with great length about the future of, um, like the optimizer culture. Yeah. Like how this has, it's captured so many people's minds. Uh, as you can, I mean, it's everywhere on, you know, crypto Twitter, developer Twitter. Um, yeah, I just think it's, uh, there's, there's some great, um, opportunities in, in capturing the mind space of developers really. I agree with you 100%. And I think it's it's interesting for a lot of reasons, but what specifically enamored you with it? Like why why were you so enamored with this challenge? Like what what really hooked you about it? Was it just that it was purely fun? Was there anything specific about it? Yeah, more more about what I've talked about earlier is that it's it's kind of the the difficulty, you know, like this is a challenge that has no, maybe it has a quick solution, but on the way, it's going to be uh, a difficult problem until someone eventually finds like the absolute best solution. And it's, I guess you could say that's how the optimizer culture is. Um, there, there might be one correct solution, but uh, along the way, you're going to spend hours and hours uh, thinking about this one problem. And that's what's captured me personally. I can't speak, you know, for other developers, uh, but this is what I what I enjoy about development is putting my full attention into something, uh, and optimizing really like itches that for me. Yeah, I love that. I I think. CTFs fill a similar role in this space. I would say CTFs are more so like, uh, I feel like occasionally those try to channel developer mindshare toward like certain kinds of problems, right? Or like certain brands in the space will sponsor them and it helps them build mindshare. Like Paradigm puts them on because it's like it's good for Paradigm as a fund, right? Yeah. Um, but how about CTFs? Like, I mean, I'm assuming you, you participated in quite a few of them. Uh, do you have any good CTF stories or memories or favorite favorite challenges that you you took on? Yeah, I'm I'm still quite early. Uh, like the the first real C, like live CTF event I did was the 
Paradigm CTF last year. And I did, uh, I, I worked with my coworker, Cheb, and we did um, so much better than we expected. Um, it was, you know, 48 hour challenge. We were, we probably got four hours of sleep total. Uh, but it was, it's just something so addicting about it that it, it, it's really similar to the optimizing where, you know, the, you know, the dopamine of solving a challenge is just like the dopamine of, you know, finishing this optimization, you know, your, your code is elegant, your solution's elegant, you know, maybe, maybe it cost you, uh, 40 lines of comments, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, beautiful in the end. And, uh, if there's, so the one, one CTF challenge I looked at, um, not too long ago was the swap challenge from the 2021 paradigm CTF. And so this challenge went unsolved during the 48 hours, but in the, the reason for that is actually the, the underlying solution was you had to exploit a issue in the solidity compiler from i believe if it was around 424 maybe about 0.5 it got fixed um basically the issue was you could overflow the free memory pointer and you could corrupt you know some some memory um and after looking into this challenge, you know, I, I kind of got thinking about some more of the systemic risks, you know, like people, people import libraries all the time. Like, do you really know exactly what's going on? Uh, one thing that hit me specifically in this was, um, in the soulmate safe transfer library, it explicitly doesn't have a check for if the contract you're transferring from exists. And this is basically showing up in, you know, all the audit reports. Um, but if you don't know that, then uh, there could be an issue. Uh, and something you know, people say is if you, if you can't reproduce the libraries you're importing from memory, you probably shouldn't be importing them, and I totally agree with that. Like, if you if you can't rewrite the ERC twenty dot soul, just you know, on a whim, you know, do you really know what's going on? Can you, you know, uh, similarly with maybe the ECDSA, we've seen uh, in the Open Zeppelin library there was uh, signature malleability, you know, all these things. Like, do you understand what's going? on under the hood um yes that's what i have to say there well don't tell that to anyone that's uh like a react developer or something because uh that's like that whole oh yeah it, this is <laughs> so i um yeah i really enjoy having you know full understanding of the things you know underneath me um i yeah i don't uh I'm not particularly good React dev. Um, <laughs> please, please don't have me write any CSS. 
I, I was getting that vibe. That's that's not surprising to me. Absolutely, uh, yeah. That's that's really interesting, and I think that that's a that's a pretty interesting way to look at like. I guess sort of these supply, I don't want to say they're supply chain attacks. It's not really the right term. It's just understanding everything that you're actually importing in your Solidity code is really important, right? It's great that we can build smart contracts that build on top of each other, right? And like, you know, you can inherit stuff, you can use standards that people have already written for you. That's all great. So you don't have to do all the work. But if you don't understand them and you're going to write some application, that's going to have billions of dollars worth of funds sitting in these applications, you should probably understand what you're importing. Uh, I think that's, that's probably a good way to look at it. So, I mean, this, so now we're getting a little bit into like actually building protocols and writing smart contracts more generally. I mean, how, how is like being involved with these, this optimizer crowd and playing around in CTFs, like, how has this helped you with like your main day to day work? Have there been yeah. anything, any things that you've like really taken back with you and been like, dude, I know I've just been tinkering out here on the fringes, doing stuff oh, that yeah, might not absolutely. be directly, directly uh, productive, but I'm, I'm sure it's helped you in some ways. Yeah, of course. Um, I'd say, you know, specifically CTFs, um, they put you in this sort of mindset that you assume all code is vulnerable. Like if, if you're going to a CTF, you know this code has some issue. Um, but traditionally, you know, you might not look at your own code as, you know, there's there's something wrong here. But it it kind of helps to search for an issue, even if there might not be one. Um, and definitely has helped me um, find some issues before you know before they go into you know live code even just even pushed onto the github um, just put putting yourself in an adversarial mindset like I'm an attacker I need to find an issue in this code at all costs that's kind of the CTF mindset um, I'll spend you know what, whatever time is necessary to find the issue um and even even if your code is completely fine it's it's a great mindset to have mhm yeah i think you're absolutely right but like how do you balance that with also like actually producing the code in the first place right so if you if you talk to like writers like people that just write for a living a lot of them talk about how they have like a like a like a writer, like generative mindset where they're just, they're not judging everything they're, 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 they're putting down on paper or that they're typing. They're just creating. And then the, a lot of times they'll flip over into an editor mode where they're extremely harsh to the things they just wrote, right? They rip yeah, it up, I, they tear it to shreds. How do you, like as someone who really knows all of the dangers uh, that, that could, that could uh, present themselves in the code that you even wrote at, after participating in CTFs and trying to find vulnerabilities other places. Like, do you have a similar process where you divide up your time between like, all right, I'm writing this program and then I'm looking at it with like an auditor style hat on or like a hacker hat on. Do you just like literally start off with just trying to design a system with all this stuff in mind in the first place? Like, how do you particularly uh, approach this? Yeah. Me personally, I'm absolutely the same way as the writers. 
Um, when I when I write my code, I kind of am in a like defensive point of view. Like I want to have all the safety checks. Um, I want to be you know overly verbose, uh, maybe at the cost of optimization, um, and that's that's the first pass. You know you have to get code that works first. And usually my second pass will be like a early optimization pass. Like, your, can I get rid of some of these require checks? Can I get rid of some state? Um, just to not, not only for gas optimization, but it lowers the uh, sort of attack surface. You know, if, you're, if your function is 10 lines versus 50, there's less to think about. Uh, and less that can be wrong. And the kind of third mindset would be the adversarial, like hacker attacker mindset, where I, I not only want to find a bug, but I want to fix it before it ever is an issue. And I find that you know having all these these hats you can put on is helpful to. Um, you can see your code in all the different lights. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that's a great way to look at it. Uh, you mentioned something there that I think is interesting that's maybe worth highlighting is that you mentioned when you're first writing this system, right? Like You're a little more verbose than maybe you need to be because you want to make sure that everything is like well understood and that you understand what's going on so that everything is like, you're not focusing on optimization quite yet, right? One failure mode I think some optimizers have is they they place optimization on such a pedestal that they they produce something that's not very well it, not not very well that's maybe the wrong way to put it but it's not very easy to understand from other people who need to look at your code whether it's an auditor or even just like a teammate or somebody else that might uh, be around to look at your code or maybe like take on a bug bounty or something like that and sometimes because of all the, the complexity that might be introduced for the sake of optimization, it introduces new problems, right? So how do yep. you personally balance like writing very secure and understandable code with optimization? Like how do you, how do you look at it? Yeah, I think the, one of the best examples for this is arguably, you know, one of, one of the best recent code bases, the um, Seaport code base. Uh, they have a, reference full solidity implementation and uh they wrote that you know first that that's the reference and then you built the full optimized you know balls to the walls uh all in assembly you know how can we extract as much gas from this and um from a attack surface point of view, I think that's really helpful uh, because you have a great starting place from your optimization. Rather than, you know, dropping immediately into assembly and doing all this complex work, you you can get a better feel for what you actually want to do if you just write it in your higher level language first. Yep. And one other thing that I've heard people say too is uh just to like if you really want to if if you're nervous about it or if you don't feel like you're you're as good with writing optimizations that are secure 
you can also just focus on the hot paths, like the, the couple of hottest paths that are going to be most likely uh, to have the greatest gas impact on your users. You can just focus there. So that, that's maybe Absolutely. another tidbit. Um, yeah, I, I feel like there's recently in the optimizer culture, you know, maybe, you know, some people have taken it too far. Like the the average contract is going to be absolutely fine. You just optimize, you know, your your storage. And that's usually all you need. Um, but the, you know, in, in search for the extra 1% of gas optimization, your potential attack surface might, you know, double when, you know, your, your solidity code for that path might have been five lines. Suddenly in assembly, it's 40. It's, uh, you really have to think about all these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that's good advice, I think. Uh, how do you think about attacks that aren't just about like solidity code and solidity bugs, right? So like there are all kinds of problems that, that can happen that can destroy a protocol that aren't even like a direct solidity vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, it could be a DevOps mistake, right? Which we've seen, like lots of money lost due to like DevOps problems, basically. Yeah. Uh, it could be a crypto economic problem. It could be something happening on the front end that causes a loss of funds. Uh, do you think about attacks that are beyond just the the standard like solidity bug ever? And if so, like, is there anything in particular that you think is is worth calling out for maybe early career devs to to think about, or uh, anything in particular that's maybe underrated in terms of a security risk? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. Um, so, you know, one of the most recent ones we saw was uh it's maybe a little bit out of scope but the the flashbots uh you know sandwich attack you know like these you know these sandwich bots their their solidity code was rock solid but their bundles got leaked and they got wrecked there was you know their their code was absolutely fine but from a operational standpoint the code that was, you know, beneath them wasn't rock solid. Um, one specific example that got ties into solidity is um, uh, precompiles. You know, like uh, delegate calling to a precompile. We've seen on some alt L1 chains, L2 chains, they have their own custom pre-compile uh, code and sometimes they just don't think about hey I can delegate call to this ERC20 pre-compile how does this work we've seen we've seen hacks like this interesting that's worth calling out uh, that's worth calling out for sure can you tell me more about the flashbots example? I didn't actually follow that one. So what exactly yeah. went wrong for them? I'm not uh, you know fully well versed on this, but briefly the so the the sandwich bots, you know, they bundle up the exploited transaction, you know, let's say I'm swapping on Uniswap. They they put a transaction of their own before and after and they they capture a little bit of money out of that because of slippage. Now the 
security risk with this is that you've signed a transaction that is buying a whole bunch of this token. And theoretically, if your bundle was, it's called unbundled, meaning uh, normally for a sandwich, you want all three of the transactions to land, you know, right after each other, perfectly how you wanted it to. But let's say someone was in the middle, uh, they could pluck out your front run transaction, which was buying a whole bunch of this token and put it on its own. And suddenly you've exposed yourself to a whole bunch of, uh, you know, dollar loss potentially. And this is kind of what happened here. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, the the MEV world is so wild to me. That's it's it's still like yeah, it's, one of the most it's wild a crazy, you know, adversarial space. Everyone everyone kinda is attacking each other all at the same time. Yeah. You gotta know what you're getting into if you're gonna go play around with MEV. Absolutely. Uh, uh yeah, do your research out there, folks. But one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, I don't know if you brought this up or Dev Tuligan brought this up or I saw this on Twitter, but I hear that you're into you're into advanced math. Is that uh, is that correct, or am I am I missing? So, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say advanced math, but I've been definitely looking into uh, cryptography quite a bit lately. And uh, I mean, so uh, the the project I'm working on, Size Market, is. Um, it's a sealed bid auction, essentially. And one of the main hurdles we had to get through was how do you deal with on-chain encryption? And this is what got me down this cryptography path. And it turns out, you know, it's not that difficult. You just have to design very specifically around it. Um, one of the coolest things I found while researching how we could solve this, you know, sealed on-chain uh, auction is time lock encryption. So the way theoretically this works is you have some sort of proof of work system, similar it's not dissimilar to like a like a bitcoin uh the bitcoin algorithm where people are basically searching for this one specific number that will decrypt the encryption and you can intend it to say last 30 minutes um based on you know roughly how many cpus are looking after this number um now there's a whole bunch of issues with this if you want to put this in production uh number one there's kind of an ecological impact where you know, you're wasting a whole bunch of cpu cycles just you know looking for this time locked number uh which i would you know kind of morally be a little bit more opposed to uh but it's sort of this holy grail of encrypting to the future without having to personally uh you know reveal your key interesting so 
one thing I think is really is really cool about some of this stuff, right? Is that this this kind of goes back to the optimizer culture thing, but it's like the the problems you're trying to solve lead to like the discovery of more knowledge, right? Whether it's you, it's you discovering that this that this thing you just found out about, like time locked encryption can be used specifically for your use case, or if it's something like oh we just discovered this new way to like. <laughs> manipulate the EVM into shaving off, uh, you know, a tiny little bit of gas to win this competition, right? Uh, or to win the I am the optimizer challenge for for a little bit. Uh, and I think what this does, the reason why this is so cool is that you guys are just following what's interesting. I mean, for for this in this one, in the case of the time locked encryption, uh, you know, that's necessary for your your work. But I think in general, though. This high-level trend, this way of operating in the world where you're just searching for interesting stuff, I think it's just like a really good, almost like personal search algorithm to find and actually create new knowledge in the first place. It's like, it's like how like I, I feel like this is how like how I imagine the OG scientists like and, and science community operating back in like the 1920s or something like that, with just a bunch yeah. of rogue. Wild West style individuals yeah, uh, working on problems nobody's yes. even thought about. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I absolutely, I love that. Um, and just to be, to clarify a little bit, uh, size doesn't use uh, time lock encryption. This is sort of what I've been, you know, kind of theorizing about. Yeah, it would be pretty cool to have, but it's, uh, it's a difficult problem to solve in production. For sure. So, what other things related to cryptography are you are you interested in besides this? Or is this like the main thing you've you've kind of this is the main rabbit hole you've gone down? So, this is definitely one of the rabbit holes. Um, one of the other rabbit holes I went down not too long ago. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. There was a tool that a ton of people use for vanity wallet uh, creation called Profanity, and the underlying issue here that led to uh, is probably about 180 million dollars lost at least was uh the seed for their private key generation was pretty small and immediately after this attack uh was played out this is at the same time as i was developing uh, some of the size uh, like encryption algorithms. And I was also kind of enamored with this problem. And I spent um, probably about one or two weeks kind of reverse engineering how this was exploited and how you can reproduce it for yourself. And it involved, you know, some cryptography, um, a little bit of, you know, difficult programming like on GPU, C++, which I had never really extensively used. And I guess this is definitely my mindset, just solving, solving random difficult problems that maybe nobody cares about, maybe nobody ever will, but things that... Uh, I enjoy just for the fun of it. See, I think, again, I think this just goes back to like, this is how it happens though. 
You know, like, like most of the useful stuff came out of like some guy just tinkering and like coming up with some th- like cool solution that became a throwaway for the existing problem set. But like then somebody discovers it like 30 years later and it becomes some huge thing. You know, like there's all, there are all kinds of examples like this. Uh, like, like Silly Putty, for example, was like a, that was like a DOD funded invention. Really? Yeah, it was like a DOD funded <laughs> thing. It was supposed to be like some kind of special adhesive or something like that. And it was like, <laughs> it was like created by some guy who just thought it was useless and they threw it away. And so some, some toy company picked it up. It was like, this is cool. Right. So you just, you literally yeah, never know. You, you never know. You never know. You literally never know. Right. So I think that the fact that this space is so friendly to this kind of like just random tinkering and exploring and really trying to just push the limits, I think it's going to create in the long term, a lot of really interesting contributions, not just to like Web3 crypto stuff, but it's going to create, I think, a lot of really interesting contributions to computer science as a whole. So yeah, very bullish. The one thing I am, I haven't really started researching is uh, ZK, you know, the Snark, Starks ecosystem. Uh, It's still, it's currently over my head on what my, you know, cryptography level is at, but uh the the web3 like zk ecosystem is very on the bleeding edge and i'm quite excited to see uh how it can impact you know outside of web3 for sure i think there's going to be a lot that comes out of that in particular um that will be very important really so I'm I'm super bullish as well. I mean, it kind of sounds like if you had infinite time, you would probably spend time there too. But like, is there anything else? Yeah, like if I somebody would. gave you six months and said, hey, uh, like you're going to keep making the same amount of money you make now, but you don't have to go to work. Like you can't work on size. You got to work on something else. What would you spend time learning? Like what are the, what's on your wish list of things to, to focus on and learn? Oh, <laughs> this is difficult. Um, so this... This one thing, um, it's it's kind of too similar, maybe, but there's this uh, idea of a. Have you ever ever used Code.golf? So the the underlying problem is, of this is to um, kind of solve a algorithm in the fewest amount of characters in you know whatever language you use uh and i know uh five out of nine has the gas.golf domain uh maybe a small call out there but um i think this would be a incredible tool for not only solidity devs but kind of a, a general web3 ecosystem for you know creating kind of a collection or library of gas optimized snippets you know uh you know we've seen this with you know soulmate soul lady uh tons of things but kind of a interactive not just on a github an interactive where anybody can submit a solution and maybe if you spend enough time you can make the the fastest you know square root and I think it could, it's not only a fun game, but 
it also helps the ecosystem at the same time. So I think that would be really fun to build out and have some fun with you know fellow developers. I think that's a really good idea. I think you have you have a built-in business model too, which is I think uh, you could find a way to to you could basically charge companies to to use something like this for like job interviews, right? For like hardcore Solidity devs. I feel like there's something there. Like, right, where, like build a leaderboard out of it or something? Build a leaderboard. Uh, let like, I don't know. You, you could probably either get advertising dollars or, I don't know. Some you, you could probably even just like have a job board itself from companies or auditing firms that just need to hire elite Solidity talent. Uh, and we use this as a, as a way to get in front of people. Like, yeah, absolutely. I, as someone who, yeah, as, as someone who's kind of sits on this side, like I, I lead a developer relations team, and I like I kind of know how much money is spent on developer attention. Yeah, it, it's not it's not a small amount. So like, like <laughs> you know, you, you that would actually probably work. So you should go yeah. for it. And um, this the, the one platform I've been using. I think it launched about a month ago. Uh, is called Curta. Um, I've been doing CTFs, uh, like where it's kind of like a permissionless CTF. Anyone can, uh, well, not anyone. Uh, it, you can deploy a contract with a challenge, and if you're the first solver, you can create another challenge. Um, they have a leaderboard. It's kind of a similar idea to this interesting yeah i think this entire space is an interesting place to look because because what i've noticed too is like the people in this industry who love like low level optimization stuff and like 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 yourself you guys love this like you you like the huff community dude the huff guys yeah love this like they love huff right yeah. and it's, it's it's such a cool like like subculture to watch because it's like so there's so much passion there so just, I mean, even if you had a relatively few, small number of people that would use this kind of thing, the amount of passion people have for it is, it, it, it's huge. So, and it's also in the end, like I said, I think it's going to be very useful, right? Even if you're solving problems that feel like, all right, you know, this is, this might be a little too fringe. Uh, this one thing that I found here, I don't see how this is going to be useful in production anywhere. You might say that now, but you truly do not know. Yeah, it's just like we were talking about, you know, scientists, nineteen twenties. Totally. Know, maybe the square root algorithm. Maybe it's something cool. Totally, totally. And it's permissionless, right? You can just be an anon with a with a PFP from anywhere in the world and and, and play in this game. Yeah, right? and that's so. that's one thing that's really helped me. As you know, I don't I don't have like a long resume or anything. I'm just some random you know PFP on Twitter. Uh, is that anyone? Anyone can make it uh, in Web three as a developer. Um, I I kind of got started, you know, out of nothing, you know, terrible code, you know, maybe some slight functionality. Um, but it's it's a great ecosystem where anybody can have an impact and build a career from nothing. So that's that's one thing I really appreciate. Yep, you're absolutely right. If there's anything I've learned by doing this podcast, it's definitely that uh, 
That is the case, man. People from all over the world, all different backgrounds. There's, there's, uh, we had Degachi on. I don't know, you know who Degachi is? Yeah, I, yeah, I follow him. I listen to that as well. It's great. Yeah, I mean, think about his example, right? He was one like a year and a half ago or a year ago. He was learning to code on public transportation on the way to like a like a retail job or something like that. And that guy is a machine. He is a machine, right? He is really, really good at what he does. He's extremely knowledgeable. And the like the speed at which some people in the space have learned is it, very impressive. So I'm with you there. But for devs that are just starting out on this journey, right? For like people that are in the phase you're in where uh, you know, you're back in your days when you're maybe locking money in contracts because <laughs> you're testing the prod. Uh, for people at that stage, do you have any like general advice for them, right? They're trying to carve out either like what their path is in the industry or, you know, like what they should focus on, what they should learn. I mean, what, what would you tell somebody in that position? Yeah. So my, the first thing that really helped me is finding a team, even if it's not people you work with necessarily, but finding a group of people that you know, similarly will support you, you support them. It, it is invaluable uh, because, you know, wor- working solo in Web3 can be, uh, it, it can be not easy at times. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of people in this and you're just some, some anon on Twitter. Uh, so it, it, help, it really helps to have a group of people that will support you. Um, and maybe from an engineering side, uh, I'd say just trust trust what you've written. Um, one thing I had a issue with was, you know, I've I've written my code, I've written my tests, and at the you know I want to deploy this, but at the final moment I just can't you know press the button to you know send the transaction. Um, what what I did was deploy some, you know, no no one will ever use them, but just deploy something on on your chain of choice. Interact with it a few times. Maybe it's just some dumb NFT, you know, you transfer to yourself and your friends. Just deploy something out there. And that really helped me with kind of my my anxiety, deployment anxiety, I call it. Um, so that, that helps me now, like, you know, I'm, I'm good to go. You know, my, my code's good. My tests are good. Send it. That's, that's what helped me. Deployment anxiety. That That's real though. That's real, right? This is real money. Like, like when you're, uh, when you're building like your first, uh, you know, let's go back to our, our react app developer in the audience. Uh, you know, if you, if you're like building a little, like, project you just like deploy with Versal or something like that there's really no risk dude it's like yep yeah they just click buttons and like nothing happens really <laughs> with that yeah. here they're clicking buttons and behind the scenes like, <laughs> moving around so i get that yeah it's it's uh it's not easy to be uh you know web3 developer it's uh there's real money on the line there's real risk right and you should actually think about that you know, when you're, when you're considering what you want to do in this space, like you don't have to be a smart contract developer to like contribute, you know, like I, to be honest with you, we probably need more like really good 
again, you React developers out there, if you're really good, you probably have a place here because there's... Yeah, we do. We do need... I mean, there's some, you know, great, there's some not so great, you know, React project, uh, you know, front ends in Web3 and uh, not all the risk is smart contract risk. That's definitely one thing. Like your your bad front end code can do, you know, just as much damage. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Name the but name a button the wrong thing and that's that's bad. Mm-hmm. That's bad as well. But uh, how about okay, so so that that's maybe the first initial advice, right? So you're you're all right. So you're you you find maybe a team, you work with people, yet you, you get over your deployment anxiety by just deploying a few things. Uh, let's say you have you get like started with like some starter project and it does decently well, or you get your first job at a at a protocol you really like. From that point forward, what like what have you done to level up beyond that? I mean, it sounds like you you've been kind of a learning machine, but like how do you how have you approached your own like personal development? Yeah. So in my personal development, the I'd say the the one thing that has helped me the most is becoming uh, intimately familiar with some tooling. For me, it's Foundry. And for this has helped me, like I can just spin up immediately within 10 seconds, uh, you know, a new Foundry project. I see something, oh, I can reproduce that imme- immediately. Um, you know, there's a new hack. Oh, you know, how does this work? Oh, I can immediately reproduce it. Um, it kind of reduces that friction of, uh, I need to, you know, how do I initialize this new project? How do I write my code? Um, it's definitely helped me uh, just do the the things that if I if I wasn't intimately familiar, I would have pushed it aside. It's not worth the thirty minutes. When in reality, it's it's a great learning experience. Yep, I think that's great advice. It shortens the time between like, uh, like st- starting up a Foundry project or a hard hat project, you're not really going to do any innovation. If you're not good at that and it takes you 20 minutes to do it, nothing you're doing there when you're setting up your project is going to like move the needle or make you unique in any way, right? The thing that yeah. makes you unique in some way is having some idea based on something you've seen or like, want, like you said, wanting to reproduce something really quickly. Being able to take that and implement it right away, that is where something interesting might happen. If it takes you 30 minutes to set the project up, you know, that that's like your the inspiration might have faded or like the Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to look at it, I think. Interesting. Interesting. I love it. Okay, so we're coming up on time a little bit here. Um but like the a final question we we ask everybody who comes on is, you know, like we, we zoom out a bit and like what I want to ask you is like how do you hope Web3 as an industry evolves? over the next like five or 10 years. But obviously we talked about the importance of just like this open space of exploration. I think that's really good. But like, what do you hope things look like toward the end of like this decade? It's a difficult one. Um, you know, I've only been in the industry for you know, under under two years. But the one thing I'd like to see more of as we go on is uh more maybe more projects that are less web3 limited like mo- most things are kind of contrived to like financial or 
you know, like moving money around or, you know, some sort of underlying blockchain technology. It, uh, not only for public adoption, but for, you know, bringing more developers. Uh, I think it's, it would be great if we could find more problems that can be solved in a Web3 experience um, and kind of adopting that problem and solving it in a way that both crypto-native and non-crypto-native users can appreciate. Yep, that's, a, that's actually a more common answer to that question than you'd think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people are actually kind of... Uh, tired of like the web three designation i think it feels yeah. a little bit exhausting right it's like this it, is just engineering is. dude like it's not like uh i don't want this to be just a separate separate little niche thing for forever and i think i share your sentiment as well so hopefully we we get there yeah it would be it would be a great future <laughs> i'm with you well listen rage thank you so much for coming on this this uh time went by pretty fast and i enjoyed yeah, the conversation great. Um, great talking to you yeah, you as well. Is there anything else you want to let our listeners know or anywhere else you'd like to point our listeners before we jump off today? You, know, you, can, you can follow me on Twitter, but that's, that's pretty much all I have to say. <laughs> What's the handle for people? Uh, it's at, at rage underscore pit. All right, at rage underscore pit. You heard the man. Shoot him a follow. Yeah, and get, me, get me over 1K. <laughs> get him over 1K. Yeah, geez. Yeah, you deserve more than 1K at this point. All right. We'll see if we can help you with that. But... Again, Rage, thank you so much for coming on. It's been fun. Thank you.